Genesis chapter 2. I'm glad to hear some of you start laughing. I was wondering if you're going to catch on to this is not the way it's supposed to be. Uh, obviously, we've been in this sermon series, mixed messages, and uh, I've been trying to make the tie between that. I'm kicking water up here. I don't think I'm, anyway, so Genesis chapter 2, mixed messages, and of course, we're talking about that regarding marriage. Now, before I jump in, I do want to make a couple of announcements uh, as it relates to our church family for this coming week and next. Uh, we do, um, for those of you who are considered high risk, we had to move on the other side of the room to make it accessible, more accessible for uh, those of you who are high risk to be able to get to your connect group. Therefore, we've reserved the warehouse parking for those who are in high risk. So if you could kind of stay away from that parking, that's kind of we designated that area. Also, this Wednesday evening, uh, everything's back to where it was six months ago, and we're so pleased about that. We will be having our midweek activities, children. The students have been meeting over the summer, so they'll continue, and then also we'll have our midweek Bible study and then some connect groups surrounded that, surrounding that. So we hope you can join us for that. And then next week, I'm excited, one of our own, Jeremy Brackett, many of you may know Jeremy from years ago. Uh, next week, he's going to be with us to give his uh, testimony and call into ministry. He's asked his home church to ordain him in ministry. And there's no greater joy than being a part of that. And so Jeremy will be with us next week. So be praying for him and uh, as we move forward with his uh, ordination. All right, the sermon series intro. If you'll look here on the screen, how does a follower of Jesus identify truth in a fallen world of mixed messages? The obvious answer is God's word and what the follower of Jesus believes about it. Is it truly God's word? This past Wednesday, I had the privilege, along with Tina and uh, uh, Gary and Heidi, to, to do a Q&A with the teenagers this past Wednesday night. And boy, they have some amazing questions when it really comes down to it. And, and, and they were looking for answers from pastors and their wives, and, and it was really a great time with them. But, but one thing that I tried to encourage them to understand is the fact that God's Word will always lead them to the best. God's word will lead them to the best. And I'm convinced of that. I have grown to understand God's word in such a way that I know that for me to have the most fulfilling, satisfying life possible, it will be through living out the truths of God's word. Uh, not buying into the mixed messages that are out there, but buying into the fact that God has created me. He's given a revelation of his word to us in such a way that we can live out his promises and his plans. And therefore, what I want to do is I want to convince others that Jesus is the way, as he says he was. He is the truth, as he says he is. And I want them to understand that as well. That God has a plan. The one that created them has a plan. He revealed himself through his word, through Jesus, in such a way that we can identify with him and his word. Now, that would also include the directions concerning marriage. So look at the series, or the introduction to the sermon. The Bible clearly teaches that there are times when we are to believe and live counterculture counterculture. Anyway, this would include a defense of a biblical worldview of marriage. Now, when we talk about a biblical worldview of marriage, I don't know about you. I believe God created me and he created the institution of marriage for which I am in. I believe that. 
I don't believe it came from anywhere. I believe it came from God himself. He is the one who ordained and established marriage. So look on your outline. It is important for us to realize that God established marriage and he designed it a certain way. There's a certain way that he designed it. And it's very clear in Genesis chapter 2 and then later in Matthew chapter 19, we're going to read where Jesus affirms what was said in Genesis chapter 2. So you have both an idea of the Old Testament and the New Testament of the idea of marriage, and they are alike. They are the same. Nothing has changed with the institution of marriage. And it was established for our good and for the good of any culture, any culture. So why did God establish marriage? Look at Genesis chapter 2, look at verse 18. What we're getting ready to read is the first marriage ceremony, so to speak. So look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. Now, the thing that I like about Scripture is many times you can read something and it's apparent what it's trying to say. But many times in Scripture, there's an underlying meaning of something that is going on that God is trying to accomplish. And what I'm seeing here is that God was bringing the animals to Adam to be named. Okay, that's what we've learned in Scripture. But I think really the main reason is for Adam to realize that he had a need in his life that he may not yet have learned. And it was the fact that he needed someone else, someone who's like him, but yet different than him. And so that's what I think is going on here. So it says in verse 21, and the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam uh, and he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord had taken from man, he made into a woman and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, the thing that we may not pick up on here is the fact that Adam liked what he saw. He, what, this is an expression of passion. This is an expression of wow. That's what you're reading here in verse 23. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So why did God establish marriage? Well, I think there are three reasons in scripture that we can find. And the first is this, to experience the deepest relationship possible on earth. Now think of this, God could have made woman from the dust, but he chose to begin with a rib to show the unique closeness of the marriage relationship. No other being or thing was created in such a way as Eve, the first woman, was created. Now, in Genesis 2.25, what we read, or what you could continue to read, it says, and they were both naked, the man and his wife, yet they were not ashamed. This verse implies that within marriage, through intercourse, there is a oneness before God. There is the pleasure that is associated with this intimacy and this whole idea of procreation. That is what we read in Scripture as it becomes that intimacy between a man and his wife. Now, this is, a, this is as God intended, to be, intended it to be. There's no mistaking in that. 
Now, what's amazing is anything else is a perversion of what God intended. It's very clear. He lays it out as clear as it can be. God intended marriage to be a sacred bond which allowed human beings to experience the deepest of relationships. But it's not just found in the Old Testament. It's communicated in the New Testament. Jesus was asked by some Pharisees about marriage and and this whole idea. Actually, he was talking on the subject of divorce. But here's what Jesus said concerning marriage. We find it in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He says, have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let man not separate. Now, why did God create marriage? Or why did he establish marriage? To experience the deepest relationship possible on earth. But then there's a second reason God established marriage. To provide children with a secure, loving environment in which to grow. In which to grow. How do we know that? Well, there's, it's alluded to in many places in Scripture, and we'll get to one in just a moment. But here's the point God intended for marriages to be healthy enough to sustain an environment where children, where the next generation could grow in a healthy manner. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is literally revealing Himself in such a way to tell parents this when it comes to the home. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy chapter 6. You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. This is not just something that you uh, think out loud, say out loud. This is something that moves you. It moves you so deeply that it's a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your heart. You shall teach them the very thing that has become real to you. You need to teach those things so it can be real to your children. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. He's basically saying, you, you have a faith in God. Your faith in God is real to you because you love him with every essence of who you are. You shall teach that. You introduce your children to that same relationship, and how you do it is to demonstrate that in front of them. Now, these verses demonstrate what biblical parenting should look like. Now, I'm going to say something, and there's going to be a couple things in this sermon that the world does not buy into. Uh, and, And I understand that, and it's a lot of mixed messages out there. But there's one thing that I think that we're making a big mistake on as a society and as a nation that we better pay attention to. And it's that idea that God created gender. God created gender. He created male and he created female. That's what we take from scripture. That's what we read. We as parents are to raise our children, listen, as they were created, male or female. And the thing that we need to understand is there's a movement going on in our nation right now in which it's that whole idea of something in which parents are raising their children to be gender neutral. Have you ever heard of the term? It's the idea that you don't try to sway them to be a boy, even though they're a boy, or sway them to be a a girl, even though they're born a girl. What's happened is we've taken the idea of a creator out of the equation. 
We bought so much into happenstance or this whole idea of evolution in such a way that we're just kind of here, just kind of making it our own way. And so therefore, if you take the equation, you take creator out of the equation and you say, okay, uh, God did this, he did it, okay. Well, what does the Bible say that God did? He created what? Male or female. That's what he created. And that's what it so clearly says in scripture. You say, why is that important? I believe young men who are born young men need to learn how to be a young man. I believe young ladies need to learn how to be young ladies. God created them in such a way. Any other thing I think is unhealthy. It gets to the point where, how, where is their identity established? Well, first of all, we know our identity is established in Christ. That's what Paul tells us over and over again. But we can't help but notice that we are also created with an identity of male or female. Anything beyond that, I believe, is very unhealthy. And we learn this in Ephesians chapter 5. I want you to hold your place in Genesis and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. We're coming back to Genesis in just a moment. Lastly, God created marriage to demonstrate a tangible example of his relationship with us. Now, if marriage is a sacrificial, faithful, loving relationship, it illustrates to the world the kind of commitment Christ has for us. One of the greatest things, one of the greatest privileges I have of being here as long as I've been here is the fact that I've known some of you for around 30 years. And, and, and I got here 30 years ago, uh, and I'll pick on Maynard. Maynard was even a young man back then. He was younger than me. <laughs> and, and what's interesting is when I began to watch people grow, and I began to see them, and, and, and you began to see how their marriages grow. And, and, and I mean, it's, it's, it's phenomenal to see success just roll out right there in front of you. None of us, I would, think, would say we have perfect marriages. My wife would say we do not have a perfect marriage. And the thing is, the fact that, that, that we're still with one another and we're still growing in that relationship, it is very inter it, it's very interesting, and I'm, I know this because I'm getting older now, in the fact that it's amazing how intimacy within the relationship grows to be something different as it grows. It's amazing to see that. And it's amazing to see that as we become husband and wife, we begin to fit into those roles, especially if we're disciples of Christ or followers of Jesus. It's interesting that we fall in to these roles that God has given us. And that's been one of the greatest things to watch some of you for 30 years grow into those roles, not only as a person, but as a married person. Same thing's going on in my life. And it's interesting, and there's comfort in that. In Ephesians chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 22. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. I'm not going to go rehash all that, but you know the Bible is saying that. doesn't mean the man is a dictator. does not mean that he does anything that his wife doesn't have input in. But this is some of the roles. And the reason I'm explaining it this way goes back to that whole idea that God created male and female. Okay? So here it is. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church, and he is a savior of the body. So what are we doing? In the, within, the, within the institution of marriage, it appears that God is creating the same type of intimacy that he has for the church, 
for those who have been redeemed. He's saying there's a lot of similarities. Husbands, verse 25, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that such should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then it says, this is a great mystery, but I, tell, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, and this is another reason we know God created male and females, because he addresses here. Nevertheless, let each one of you, you husbands, in particular, so love his wife, cherish his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Listen, if you don't see gender roles in this, you've totally missed the whole point. There's some things that we need to understand, as I said earlier, that God created men to be men and women to be women. There's a purpose. There's a plan. And based on what I know about God's word, the most fulfilling, satisfying relationship will come through that avenue. That's where you'll find that. Now, turn back to Genesis. We'll be back in Genesis uh, for a while. Now, God designed marriage so we could have intimacy Children could have security and that the world could have a testimony and demonstration of God's love for us. However, there are those, there are those and things that attempt to destroy God's plan for marriage. And that's what I want to talk about for the remaining time. And the thing I want us to talk about right now are the enemies of marriage, the enemies of marriage. First of all, I want us to look at the who, the who. And the first is the deceiver. The deceiver. I think most of us would agree that Satan, the adversary, is also a deceiver. We, we know that. We know that to be evident. We've lived long enough. We've seen it play out in our lives. We see it in scripture. He is the deceiver. Everything that God purposed to be holy, to be sanctified, everything that he says, this is as right as right can be, the enemy has attacked. How many of you have seen that? Not only in your own life, in our nation, in many other places. So the enemy's role in all this is to bring a, a disillusionment, to bring deception into the whole thing, into everything that God has created that he has called sacred and holy. That's his purpose. That's what he's attacking. So when you look at Genesis chapter 3, we see this, this conversation between Eve and the enemy. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Now first of all, this serpent, we know who it is. If you know anything about the Bible, it's the enemy. It's Satan himself. And he's basically bringing and trying to raise a question before Eve. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat of it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. 
You know, it's very interesting when you read these first three verses, it appears that Eve it has good theology. It appears that she has known what God has said, and she, up to that point in her life, has put those things in its proper perspective and lived those things. Now, I don't know about you, but how many of you would like to give it a try to live in the Garden of Eden? I would. Why would you even risk the whole idea of leaving something that special? Well, the enemy is beginning to tear down some things in Eve's heart. He, he's beginning to bring his own version of, of, of what is truth. He's, bring, he's bringing deception to her, okay? And says this, but in verse 4, Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When it says you'll be like God, knowing good and evil, do you know what that really means? It really means you, at that point, will be able to take charge of your own life. You'll be able to create your own truth. You'll be able to call good what you want to call good and evil what you want to call evil. You, you, can, you can flip the table on everything and live just how you want to. But again, he's bringing the deception. Notice how the enemy works here. He first got to Eve to question God's word. He basically is saying, does that really make sense? Then he denies God's word. He comes out and says, that's not true. You won't die. It's just a myth. Then he reverses God's word. You won't die. In that day in which you eat that fruit, that's when you'll really start living. That's when you'll really start living. I mean, think about that. It's a flat-out deception of lies. The lie is that we know better than what God knows for us, his best. I want you to look at what happens next, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable, here it is, to make one wise in their own understanding, by the way, not, not in the wisdom of truth, but in the wisdom of deception, she took of it and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. They both fell for the lie. They both got to a point where they no longer trusted God. They trusted the enemy and the words of the enemy in such a way that now deception has rushed in. Then, verse 7, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. All of a sudden, the first impressions of guilt and shame have entered into the human race. Sin is fully there. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves. Y'all, they weren't playing hide and seek. They were ashamed. They did not, for the first time, I guarantee you, in their life, they did not want to see God coming. I want you to think about what that does. All of a sudden, who God is, his truth, all that has been flipped. It's been flipped. Now they're creating their own path, basically, but they're hiding from it. And Adam and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. That's when it all started going downhill, when deception entered in. Let's look at some things. The deception brought misery. What do we know from the text in Genesis 3? Their marriage would suffer. Their children would suffer. Their children's children would suffer. Life just got more difficult. 
How many of you have ever bought into a lie or bought into deception and life got a whole lot harder? We've all been there, haven't we? The consequences of their sin, shame, guilt, fear, blame shifting, battle for control. All of that's on the table now. The enemy's goal, here's what we need to understand, is to destroy marriages by introducing conflict, hurt, and unforgiveness. Marriages have from the beginning, and we see it in Genesis 3, continues to, to today to be the target of the enemy. And if, he can, if, if there's a marriage that's already established and he can get a foothold some, somehow to, to break that marriage apart, he's very satisfied with that. Not only that, what do we see the enemy doing now in our day and age? He's trying to redefine something that God called sacred. God called marriage sacred. And guess what the enemy's trying to do? He's trying to redefine the idea of marriage. He's trying to take away from what God has set up. Now, one of the main reasons we're easy prey to be deceived is because of our own selfishness. You see, when Eve ate of the fruit and then gave to Adam, there was a certain amount of selfishness there. But the first thing we see there is the selfishness. Let me give you some snapshots of what our marriages should look like according to God's word. They're here on the screen. Philippians 2, 3. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem, esteem others better than themselves or better than himself. Ephesians 5, 33, we just read it. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love, so cherish his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Is this what's going on in your home? Is this what's going on in your marriage? It, get, it gets tougher. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Y'all know these verses. Love suffers long and is a kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. Bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love will never fail you. It will never fail in the context of love that God describes here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You see, the problem is that our selfish happiness means more to us than fulfilling our commitment to our spouse then providing a safe haven for our children where mom and dad work together in modeling and teaching what God's desires. A big part of it is the fact that we're selfish. And we have to work on that. And we see it in scripture. The enemies of the marriage, we're going to go from who to what. And the first thing I'm going to pull out is something called cohabitation. Habitation. It's living outside, living together outside of marriage. Now let me say this. Some have been deceived by the mixed messages of our society. There's not a movie that you can watch, not a TV show that you can watch, in which it's perfectly, perfectly acceptable for two people to live together, to have sexual intimacy, all that. There, it's out there. It's, it's, that is the message of the world. It is okay. Let's get rid of all these uh, things that are ancient of days, and let's, let's be a modern society. Let's just... Go ahead and just go with what feels good to do it. And that's what we have out there. But one of the myths of a secular world, listen, is that this is wise and helpful to live together before marriage. I can't tell you how many times I've actually heard people tell me that. Well, we're kind of giving it a test run. 
You're not going to buy a car unless you give it a test run, right? Well, this isn't a car. <laughs> this is a human being. This is a person that you, either you believe God's brought that person in your life or not. And it's that whole idea. Some don't want to get married because of failed marriages around them. I, I've heard many people who have chosen to live together, and the reason they do is because they don't think marriage works in the first place. And some of us could look around and say, well, maybe there's something to that. But, but listen, there's so many people, and I used to teach this too. Someone put me onto a great book in which I've looked at the true statistics. Did you know that a lot of times, and I've even quoted this, that, that we believe at first one in two marriages end in divorce? Did you know that's all wrong? Did you know that's not what we re- that's not really the case? Did you know that actually seven out of ten marriages are okay? That they do last? Seven out of ten. Does that not blow your mind? Actually, the rate's getting higher. Now, some people say, well, that's because cohabitation's been built in. People are giving up on the idea of marriage and so forth. And that, there could be some truth to that. But the point is, marriage is more successful than we really think it is especially when that marriage is rooted and grounded in the truths of God's word. But listen to this. Hebrews 13, 4 says this. Marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers, God's going to judge. He's going to judge. According to statistics, listen to this. Living together before marriage nearly doubles the risk of divorce. Of those who live together before marriage, only one in three actually get married. Marriage is to be held in high honor. Occasionally, and my heart goes out to this a certain degree. Listen to this. Occasionally, I'll hear a young lady who wishes her boyfriend would take the next step and give her a ring and make a commitment to her. But why should he take the next step if he's already receiving the benefits of marriage without the commitment. Have you ever thought of that? That's another way we've made marriage not sacred. It is because of that. And here's the sad case of this. I know young ladies, my wife's talked to them. I've heard other women talk to them. And here's what they say, that they feel like they need to be intimate with their boyfriends to keep their attention in such a way that they can keep them because their worst fear is to lose them. Or maybe they'll wind up with no one because the rest of the world is doing those things that shouldn't be done outside of marriage. And those poor young ladies who are trying to honor God's word, trying to honor the institution of marriage, they're trying their best to do it the way God says, and yet we have a whole world that literally laughs at it, laughs at the whole idea. That's the reason we need to pray for our young people. We need to pray for our young ladies to remain firm, to remain strong. It's not just the young ladies, our young men. See, again, God's best. God has written what he considers the best, and he's given it to us. Here's the bottom line. The church has a responsibility to stand firm for God's truth, even if the culture's not buying into it. We still got to stand firm. Another enemy of marriage is homosexuality. Homosexuality. Now, let me just say this. We, we could name a lot of things that are, that are enemies of marriage, and, and, and I believe we've nailed several of them already. Living outside of marriage. Now, let me say this about living outside of marriage. 
I, I believe that that's something that could be rectified with marriage. <laughs> Just do the right thing. God says this is the best. Let me show you. God, it's literally God saying the one who created us, the one who created and orchestrated marriage, the, the, guy, the, the, God, the God who wrote the whole idea of the greatest intimacy you can have, he wrote about it. He says, here's the best way to get there. Get married. Get married. If you believe God's behind this in this relationship, get married. But then when you come to something like homosexuality, it's like there's a, there's a whole different thing here that we're looking at. I want, I want to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. I want, I want to show you a couple of things in Scripture about this, this lifestyle. Look at Leviticus 18.22. And, and the whole time I'm reading this, this is not my opinion. This is what we're finding in God's Word, who's basically telling us, if you want the most fulfilling, most satisfying life, here's how you do it, and here's how you shouldn't do it. So here's what it says in Leviticus. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is abomination. Now I hear people say, yeah, you know, when you read this in Leviticus, and if you scroll down far enough, you'll see that it says you shouldn't eat bacon either. And then they just totally dismiss it. Well, that's not the same thing. We're not talking about the same thing. The dietary laws and the sacredness of marriage are two completely different things. Two completely different things. Some say, well, that's the Old Testament. And the New Testament doesn't really talk about it. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that. And it, um, I find it appalling that people believe that. Romans chapter 1, look at verse 24. 124. Therefore, God also gave them up. In some translations, it says he gives them over. What does it mean for God to give someone over? Here, here's what it means. Okay, let me clear this up first. It means that God has abandoned them. It means that he, he, he gave them over to judgment. He gives them over to, to the deceit in which they're now under. They kept wanting and wanting and wanting and moving in that direction. And as they moved in that direction, they got more and more rebellious in such a way that God just turned them over. There was never, uh, at that point on, any, any conviction. There was never any red flags that they would feel in their heart. He says, okay, if you want this, I'll give you to this. And they fall in to this deception. And believe it or not, they're very good at defending their deception. We see that. So he says, Therefore, God gave them up or gave them over to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worship, uh, uh, worship and served a creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Now, when he says the creature instead of the creator, it's not that they were setting up these gods or anything. It's the whole idea that, that uh, their God is their structure in which they built their lives on. You, you get that, right? It's not that there's this monkey god statue sitting over here. No, he's saying their idol has become the structure of their unbelief and the structure of the deceit and untruth that they live in. That's what he's talking about here. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Do I have to explain that any further than what it says? Likewise, also the men leaving the natural use of the woman burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. 
And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. Y'all, what we're reading in Romans chapter 1, many commentators say, besides the description of the great white throne judgment in the book of Revelation, that this chapter is one of the toughest chapters in all the Bible as far as God coming down. And I'm just going to tell you, when I read this, I, I, I read that there's something here that he's pulling out, that he's holding up. He, he's literally saying, this can be very destructive. This can be very destructive. Why is he calling it out the way he is? That's what we find here. It's clear for, the bottom line is this, it's clear from Scripture where God stands. His word calls it a perversion meaning it's not what God intended. We are told people are created with homosexual desires, and there is it is intolerant to suggest that they should change or deny those desires. But let me ask you a question. Aren't we all born with sinful desires? Aren't we all born that way? We are. You may be sitting there saying, I'm not. Bless your heart, yours is pride. <laughs> We're all born with those things. We don't just give ourselves over to it. We don't just buy into the deception of it. Whatever it may be, lust, whatever it may be. If it's those things, he's not just picking on this. It's really any sexual immorality. Anything that we've given ourselves over to, where that becomes our God, where every waking moment, that's what we're giving ourselves to. The Bible says in 1 Peter 2.11, here's what it says. Dear friends, you are foreigners and strangers on this earth. So I beg you not to surrender to those desires that fight against what you know or what you are. And he's talking to Christians here. So what does he command us as Christians to do? Give in to our flesh nature? Give in to perversion? Give in to those things? No. He says, you fight against those things because I know, I know a better way. There's a better way for you. There's a more satisfying, more fulfilling way. This is the way. The most loving thing that we can do is to tell people the truth. Did you know that? And not, and, and basically not, be part of the deception they're living under. But to tell them the truth. The problem is many of us are lousy at telling the truth. How many of you have had that in your own life at times? I mean, you just came across as a jerk. You know, when you see Jesus and he's dealing, you I mean, go and study the gospel. You see Jesus dealing with those who are in sin. He was much tougher on the religious than he was the prostitute and those that he encountered who were in sin. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever sat there and thought, wow, 
What's the difference here? Well, the religious were prideful. You couldn't tell them anything. They continued to question his judgment, continued to question who he was. But the sinner, when he approached them, it was this loving exchange. Of course, he was still firm. He told them the truth. And then he'd say, but there's a better way. There's a better way. Don't do that again. That's not the way. I provided a better way. It's in my word. I mean, it's amazing where we go with some of these things. Sometimes we're ugly when it comes to certain sins. I think we have to be careful how we minister to the homosexual community. We can't be jerks. We need, to, we need to engage them in a compassionate way, just like we would with any other person who's caught in sin. In a, a compassionate way, we need to tell the truth. Listen to this, Matthew chapter 9. I want you to listen to what it says. Jesus, this is Jesus' heart. Then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of sick and every disease among them. But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep, having no shepherd. They were just out there trying to make it. They didn't, I mean, he, he had a heart for those who were caught up in sin. How do we know that? Luke chapter 4. Jesus said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. When he talks about the poor, he's not talking about economically. He's talking about those who are poor in spirit. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. The recovery of sight to the blind could be in a physical nature, but it could also be in a deceptive nature where those who are deceived by everything He's come to open their eyes, to set them free, those who are oppressed. So the question is this, have we demonstrated compassion for those in the bondage and deception of homosexuality? Do we exude compassion? J.D. Greer, prominent pastor here in North Carolina, I, I really respect the guy. He, he really has a way to minister and he has a shepherd's heart and Here's what he said. Let me give you some things that we need to consider. We have to love our homosexual neighbor more than we love our position on sexual morality. I don't mean by that, that we give up our conviction. I mean that our relationship with them must not be contingent upon their agreeing with us. Like Jesus, we, we who would not bend on God's righteous law, but when we came into conflict with them, rather than crush us, he allowed himself to be crushed. Think about that. We're all carrying sin. You know that, right? We say, I love you more than I love being right. And so even if you don't see things my way, I'm going to keep bringing you close and remain committed to you. We don't just put a bunch of verses on them and all they need to, people need to know the truth no matter what their sin is. We need to bring them out from under the deception. But the thing is, we don't just do that. We commit to them as much as possible, as much as they'll let us, that we're there for them, that we'll help them in any way. This is where the Christian community has so badly failed to live out Jesus' ministry. We, we're good at calling it out, but are we good with walking beside someone who's searching for the best way? Are we good? 
God gave me an opportunity to do that some years ago. Some years ago. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I, many years ago when I was a younger man, I, I got to tell you, I, I had a hard time with the homosexual community. I really did. I, I acted unbecoming in a couple of ways and ways I shouldn't have acted. Uh, just There was a hatred that was in me towards that group of people which should not have been there. And then God introduced me to a man who with every fiber of himself was trying to fight that desire for his wife and children. And I watched the battle take place in that man's life. I prayed with him. I prayed with him as much as I could. And I, I tried to pull in close. I tried, to, I tried to do it the way I thought Jesus would do it. And I'll be honest with you, that was new territory for me. But you know something? Ever since my experience with him, God has given me a compassion. A compassion for all those in sin, but especially in that community. They may laugh at me. They may, they may say that I've just said the worst thing when I say this. You know something? I believe they're living under deception. I really do. They may find that highly offense, but I think that's what I'm reading in Scripture. And I do want to walk beside them. I do want to pray with them. I do want to talk with them. And God's given me the opportunity. Here's what he says, J.D. Greer. At the same time, we must love them enough to tell the truth. To tell the truth. The last enemy of marriage. Wow, where did the time go? I'm going to have to finish this next week. Anyway, I have to finish it. Sorry. You have to come. Where? I'm sorry, y'all. Great day. <laughs> I'm totally lost here. It's late. How many of you already knew that before I said it, right? Okay, thank you. I appreciate that. Anyway. Y'all, I, I here's what I want you to take from this this morning. I want you to take the fact that this is God's word. And I want you to take on the fact that that I'm just trying to tell you what his word says. How many of you agree at times it's hard-hitting? It is. How many of you, there's times in which, you know, sin's easy to call out until there's a face associated with the sin? That makes it different, doesn't it? Makes it tough. But y'all were called to love those in sin, just as Jesus did. Father, we just come to you now, and we thank you for your goodness, Lord, and we just thank you for who you are. Father, I just pray, Lord, I know my words can be taken in so many different ways, and I just pray, Lord, that it's being taken in the way you present it, but also with that compassion that you, Jesus, showed those who were in sin. We thank you for what you desire to do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen.